This is the Zen's podcast, the podcast on science, technology, and entrepreneurship. And today, your host is Zen Rongyap, and our guest today is David Heath. David is the president of the Oxford University Rocketry Society, and is a DPhil student in the medical science department. He is a good friend of mine as well. David, how are you? Hello, thank you for inviting me on. It's fantastic. Very good to be here, and I'm doing very well. Thank you. Awesome, awesome. Um, yeah, David's a good friend of mine because we work in the Oxford University Rocketry Society together. We're, we're building, um, well, we hope to build hybrid engine and um, hope to continue our work on the thrust vector control project. David, maybe you want to tell us a bit about um, what the projects are about and uh, what we envision. Yeah, absolutely. So. Uh, the Oxford University Rocketry Society is a very, very um, interesting rocket society. It provides a lot of opportunities for students. Um, we kind of provide those opportunities through three main projects, the small rocket project, the thrust vector control project, and the hybrid rocket um, project. Uh, the small um, rocket project is basically designed to give students an introduction to rocketry. Um, and allow them to develop and explore their skills. The thrust vectoring um, rocket is designed to let the students take that um, more basic foundation and develop it into a uh, more nuanced and deeper understanding um, foundation for further projects. And then the final project, which is the, the really big one, is the hybrid rocket, which is designed uh, really as a cutting edge research project um, to allow a group of students to be um, the first um, students to fly above 100 kilometers in altitude. Um, and again, the, the reason that this is so interesting is that um, it allows us to really take uh, students to the next level on the cutting edge of technology and develop their, their skills, either for a career in research or to go directly into the rocket industry. That's fantastic. I always, I, I always love hearing about um, rockets and um, I'm very glad that uh, David has taken it on him to, uh, to, lead, to lead the group through uh, to hopefully uh, building what we're looking for. And maybe David, you could tell us a bit about uh, you know, how you got into uh, rocketry and um, you, 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 you've mentioned quite a lot of times the aerospike engine uh, in our chats. Yeah. So a lot, I don't think a lot of people know about that. So maybe, maybe a bit about that as well. Okay, awesome. So yeah, the, how I got into to rocketry is a really interesting uh, story. Um, I kind of always knew that I wanted to be a scientist um, right from when I was a kid. And um, that led me down the rather dubious path of chemistry. Um, so I, I was very interested in chemistry, color changes, um, and of course, things that burn quite fast. Uh, so when I was about um, 10 or 11, um, I found out how to make gunpowder. And being a uh, enterprising 10 or 11 year old, I decided the best way to explore gunpowder was to make <laughs> uh, gunpowder and put it in a plastic pipe. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> oh. 
How do you even get the, you? How do you even make the? Oh, you made it! I thought I thought you bought gunpowder. Yeah, I don't think anyone would let a nine or ten year old buy gunpowder. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, exactly. But again, this this was when I was living in South Africa, so um, some things are easier to 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 get hold of. Um, you can you can walk into a pharmacy, for example, and get hold of sulfur and saltpeter or um, potassium nitrate. Uh, which, you know, the only other thing you need then is um, charcoal. And so basically, uh, I, I started by taking that and, and uh, mixing it. And obviously, I had great fun. Um, and then that sort of continued through. Um, and eventually, I, I came to university to study mechanical engineering. Um, and this sort of culminated when I was allowed in my, uh, in my second year uh, oh, sorry, in my placement year of, of university, um, a bit of freedom. So I started the Oxford uh, Brooks Rocketry Society. And then um, I entered into a national rocketry championship and designed a small rocket, um, which, you know, everyone's got to start somewhere. Um, it wasn't the best rocket in the world, <laughs> but um, it, it taught me a lot about uh, aerodynamics and structural uh, analysis and all that sort of thing. And then I continued that into my third year, uh, where I then designed a 3D printed rocket, um, not necessarily because 3D printing is, uh, you know, the, the current buzzword, but because it's really cheap. So that meant that um, I could produce a rocket and launch it um, quickly and cheaply. Um, yeah, and then continued up to do my, my default and um, joined the Oxford Rocketry Society. As far as aerospikes go, um, I got very interested in them um, around about the placement year. Um, I started reading papers about rockets and this, this thing kept coming up, aerospike, aerospike. And um, in order to, to explain what an aerospike is, firstly, um, I'll just give a, a brief background about uh, how rockets work. And essentially what they do is they start off with um, a gas that has quite high temperature, a lot of energy, um, but it's got low velocity. And you accelerate that gas through a converging diverging nozzle. Um, and essentially you accelerate it to Mach 1. And after Mach 1, gases have a really weird property where in, if you expand them, instead of slowing down, they actually speed up. Um, so they use Prantlmeyer um, expansion fan uh, to do that. And that's really, really interesting. Um, and both uh, conical nozzles and bell nozzles use um, that expansion effect to uh, get more efficiency out of the thrust that's produced. Now, where an aerospike nozzle uh, differs from these is that it essentially uses a, a solid surface on one side and a gaseous surface on the other side. Um, so what that allows is instead of the uh, expansion ratio of the gas being constrained by two uh, solid surfaces, it can change depending on the pressure outside the rocket, which means that you can design the rocket uh, nozzle for the maximum expansion ratio you're expecting that stage to see, and then allow the gas to uh, essentially recompress the, the, the exhaust gas along the, the aerospike at higher pressures than uh, your final pressure, um, which 
gives you a huge boost of efficiency over uh, bell nozzles because of course bell nozzles are designed for sea level and then they lose efficiency as they go higher and higher so that's why they're, they're really exciting <laughs> cool uh, can i just clarify why why does the uh, fluid accelerate or go far yeah why does it accelerate um when you when you allow it to diverge up above Mach one so that is a very interesting question um and the the best way i can explain it is uh, actually I, I saw this on a youtube video and it, it kind of makes me envious that uh, this guy came up with this this explanation but it, it really you'll see it's it's probably the best explanation i've ever heard if you have people trying to escape from a restaurant that's on fire yeah um essentially they will bottleneck towards the the door right that's your your mach one shockwave mm -hmm. and if you then allow them freedom outside of that where there are no other people because essentially after after that point the gas is traveling faster than the speed of sound so you've got no pressure fluctuations traveling back down the the flow so if you allow these people to escape out of the door um they have no one else to to hit so they can run as fast as they want um and essentially as far as i can understand it it's a form of explosive decompression i see hmm. but um, why specifically mach one though because i would have guessed that it wouldn't matter it, it would be the same for any um temperature well um speed right well so below mach one what happens is that um, while you've got uh, pressure effects that will change the density of the flow, um, that that critical point where the pressure can no longer, uh, or pressure fluctuations can no longer travel downstream or back upstream, uh, depending on your, your frame of reference, um, that critical point is um, Mach 1 where the, the flow has accelerated to the point where um, all of the, the molecules are bumping into each other um, through, a, through a hard section, essentially, of, of the flow. Uh, before that, you don't end up with the same effect. So if you only accelerate the, the gas to 90% or 99% of the speed of sound, uh, but then you expand it, you're still dealing in subsonic flow and the gas will just slow down. See, okay. I need to look a bit more into <laughs> the fluid dynamics of that. Yeah, that sounds, sounds really cool. Um, so I mean, because um, what comes to mind is like the bottled, uh, bottled water rocket, mm. and uh, I mean the water, the water is still able to accelerate out, um, even below Mach one, and it's it, it would be a diverging nozzle. Well, because the nozzle is the uh, is where you um like mm. drink from, right? So, yeah. So, I mean, this this is, this is actually a, a very, very good point. And that's uh, actually how this effect was discovered, um, was the Delaval nozzle. So, um, as, you, as you may well know, um, there's a, a, a quite an old theory in fluid mechanics called Bernoulli's theorem, yeah. um, or Bernoulli's equation, which you can use to predict how fast a flow 
will move depending on uh, the cross-sectional area and mm -hmm. compression yeah. and all that sort of thing. Um, and so very logically, um, if you increase the flow, but you keep the, the mass flow rate, uh, sorry, you increase the velocity, but you keep the mass flow rate the same, then you've got more momentum in the fluid. And so what the Delaval nozzle sought to do um, was to increase steam flowing, uh, the, the momentum <clears throat> of the steam, so that when it hit the turbines generating electricity, um, you would have a greater efficiency of energy transfer. And they sort of discovered that you could only accelerate the flow to a certain point. Uh, any more, and you would end up with, um, as we discussed, you'd end up with a, a normal shockwave. And then it's really weird. The flow actually just will stay at Mach 1. Basically, it'll, it'll create a pressure back uh, up, the, up the chain. Um, and so when this was then, uh, this idea was then applied to uh, rocketry, um, they, they did a, a similar sort of thing and then uh, added on the, the conical bit, um, which basically expanded the, the flow and gives us your, your supersonic effect. And that was um, in a paper by, um, one of the, the founders of, um, of modern rocketry, um, and I've, I've forgotten his name, it's 1929. It's not Robert um, Goddard, is it? Goddard, there you Goddard. go. There yes. Go. <laughs> well done. <laughs> um, yeah, so what he did was he showed that uh, compared to normal rocketry, which is at the time normal rocketry, where you would just have the flow come out of the rocket um, accelerated by its heat. If you actually compressed and expanded it, uh, you would increase the efficiency from about two to 5% to around 20% efficiency. Um, now we've taken all of that uh, knowledge that's been developed over the last um, 60, 70 years. And uh, our rockets are now at a, at a place where they uh, expand with about 90 to 97% efficiency. How did, how did we get to, to uh the, this efficiency now from before so the main the main thing is that you you don't want um excess shock waves right because shock waves cause a loss of entropy in the flow um so basically the problem with a, a conical nozzle is that you've got your Prandtl-Meyer expansion fan but then your gas doesn't, um, it doesn't expand at the proper rate. So it ends up bumping into itself off the walls, which causes um, essentially compression uh, effects, which then you lose energy in the gas as you do it. The other thing with a, um, uh, a conical nozzle is that if you think about the velocity vectors that are generated by that, uh, the flow coming out of that, they vary from the center of the nozzle directly in line with the thrust. Uh, they vary outwards towards the maximum angle of the, the nozzle. So the velocity vectors are not all in line with the direction of motion. So you lose 
a percentage of um, the momentum of the gas. Uh, and that's really what bell nozzles are designed to solve, um, is they, they design the geometry of the, um, of the bell nozzle so that uh, you don't end up with those uh, compression regions. And essentially, it, it perfectly fits the expansion, uh, the expansion fan of the, the, the Prandtl um, Mayer equation. Okay, and yeah, what also happens because of that, then um, you cause the reflection of the gas from that surface to be perfectly in line with the direction of motion. So you end up with your maximum momentum transfer. So do you think do you think this was worked out was all worked out analytically like back in this like fifties or sixties, or did you need, do we need CFD for all of this? Oh, this was. <laughs> <laughs> this was before CFD. So, so th th this is actually why it's so brilliant, right? So um, the guy, who, I, I've mentioned the equation a couple of times, the Prandtl mayer um, The guy who uh, came up with that equation, it was actually two, two guys. Um, one of them, Mayer, was the doctoral student of uh, Prandtl. Oh. Uh, Prandtl is basically the father of modern uh, fluid dynamics. Um, or modern fluid mechanics, basically, full stop. <laughs> um, and so he, he, you know, he, he's just an unbelievably prolific mind uh, in the field of fluid mechanics. Uh, for example, he devised the uh, ideal um, lift distribution along a wing uh, of fixed length and of fixed mass. Um, and a whole load of other uh, fluid effects that you know each time you you go into a new specialization of fluid mechanics you will at the base of that find something Prandtl did this is so exciting to, it's, <laughs> it's, it's so it's, cool to hear yeah. all, what like, all these people have done in the past yeah. no absolutely <laughs> but so so this was the thing this this guy was a genius and then in in this particular uh, instance he and his um uh, his his uh, doctoral student um, worked out this theory for the expansion of um, supersonic gases. And the problem at the heart of, of this is that you can have a finite expansion uh, of, uh, sorry, a finite compression of a supersonic gas, right? You can have a singular shockwave do that. And what that ends up with is uh, you've got a, um, essentially, as, as we mentioned, an entropy change across that. And the problem is that if you tried to expand supersonic flow through a single shock wave, you go the other way and entropy doesn't allow it. You would violate the, the, the laws of the universe. So they had to find this way that you could have expansion of supersonic gases, which you do see in, in tests and um, uh, wind tunnels and, and things like that. So data existed, um, but it was how does it actually happen? And together, they sort of worked out this analytical um, equation, which allows an infinitely, an infinitely, um, sorry, like infinite numbers of infinitesimally weak 
shockwaves uh, across a hard feature, right? So you, you would have a region where you have infinitesimal small steps, which each expand the flow a little bit and keep uh, entropy constant. And that, that fundamentally is why, why rockets are so efficient, is that, that equation. So um, you're saying that just um, because the bell nozzles are modeled on the Prandtl-Mayer equation and it, it, it sort of redirects the shock waves, is that right? Or it, it, it reduces yeah. the shock waves? Uh, so the bell nozzle actually what, what it does is, um, and this is getting into how you actually create that, that geometry. What you do is you start off at a, at a point and you say, um, you follow the, uh, the line. Um, because? Yeah, so basically you, you, you follow the line of expansion along and then um, you meet a point where uh, that intersects with the geometry. And at that point, you know that the, the gradient of the, um, of the surface has to allow the flow to reflect in line with the movement of the rocket. So can you repeat that part again? Yeah, so basically you create, you start off with a single point and then you create a fan of lines. Right, each which follow the equation of um, uh, the 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 Prandtl-Mayer um, angle, which mm -hmm. allows the flow to turn through a certain angle. And essentially, what happens is you allow the flow to to expand, and then you form it back into the direction yeah. that it's going. And then uh, the intersection of those uh, those lines. Um, with the, the solar geometry is essentially the surface of the nozzle. Um, and I will also preface this by saying, uh, the last time I wrote that code was about three years ago. So my knowledge is a little bit rusty on exactly how you do it again. But that's that's basically what, what you do is you follow that, uh, that expansion uh, equation and you, you can have as many, um, as many lines as you want. Um, so it, it's a computational thing, and um, the the more uh, lines you have, the the closer that your nozzle will um, approximate the ideal theory, and the more efficient it is. So was this so, was this for three um, D printing the nozzle, or wait, no, I don't no. think you didn't three D print the nozzle, did you? Right? No, no. <laughs> um, although having said that. Uh, an Australian university did actually manage to to print um, print the nozzle, and I know this is terrible. Like I've mentioned now, two different things on YouTube without like telling you who they were. Um, I'll give you the, the links afterwards. But um, basically, this Australian university managed to create a uh, a fully three D printed aerospike nozzle. Wow, about um, metallic metal, right? Yes, yes. So they had metal printing. Um, and one of the major challenges, obviously, is cooling. So this this is another problem with aerospikes, um, is that what basically happens is when the flow is below the um, design pressure, um, sorry, when the, the, the pressure is higher than the, the design pressure, 
you end up with a situation where the flow is being recompressed. And basically what happens is uh, we were talking about those um, expansion shockwaves. Now, what happens with the expansion, uh, sorry, with a shockwave is when it reflects from a solid surface, it reflects um, as it is. So an expansion shockwave will reflect as an expansion shockwave. Uh, whereas when it reflects from a fluid surface, it will reflect as the opposite. So an expansion shockwave will reflect as a compression shockwave. And so what happens with, uh, with aerospikes is that you've got these expansion shockwaves which come down, they reflect off the surface, and then they hit the fluid boundary layer and reflect back as compression shockwaves. So you then, uh, you expand the gas and you recompress it down again, and then uh, your compression shockwave reflects and you get a series of expansion and compression shockwaves down the, the length of the nozzle. The problem with this is that compression shockwaves are known for generating huge amounts of heat. Um, and if you think about the, the temperature that's coming out of the, the throat of your, your uh, rocket is, you know, maybe um, if it's a, if it's a hydrolox, like 4,000 degrees Celsius or higher. Um, if, you, if you compress that, you can end up with a higher uh, temperature on the surface than you would have um, in the combustion chamber and your combustion chamber is already on the limit of melting. Um, so that's a, a problem that has to be solved uh, if you're going to design aerospikes. And essentially what happened was that these students, um, sorry, I'm just plugging in my phone. Uh, these students created a nozzle which had cooling channels built into it, which you can do with 3D printing. And by doing that, they were able to mitigate the heat and therefore create the, the nozzle. Um, it was actually an amazing achievement. Um, but yeah, so you can, in theory, 3D print nozzles. Um, so is, are the compression and expansion shockwaves what cause the, the diamond uh, looking pa uh, patterns yes, in the... That's, that's exactly what happens. So wait, is that only for aerospikes or is that for others? No, that's, that's for all, for all um, supersonic flow. I see. Because yeah, so first time I saw that was in the Raptor engines a couple of years ago. Um, yeah. <laughs> it didn't. It didn't look real to me. That was the weird thing. It's it's incredible, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and of course, the the diamonds you're seeing there are are really really hot, uh, which is why they're they're giving off light. Yeah. Um. So I'm I'm guessing the the heat is because of the turbulence. Um. During the compression. Uh, the heat is because you're um, you're rapidly compressing the gas. So it follows from the uh, the equations of um, you just have, have more kinetic energy in that area. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Oh, I see. That's so cool. Okay. So yeah, you're, um, you're rapidly increasing the temp uh, the pressure, which increases uh, the the temperature, um, and then the the fact that that high temperature flow is in contact with the boundary layer on the surface creates a a thermal transfer. And yeah. so you end up with, it's it's not like a point uh, thermal load, you end up with more of a, a distributed, but it's still quite localized. Hmm. Yeah, I've, I've taken a, a bit of statistical mechanics and uh, <laughs> just seeing all uh, work together from, um, from physics and materials to fluid dynamics is all 
uh, quite a treat really. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So um so, called us. so I searched it up and it seems like it was it was the Monash University. And they call it Project X. Um that oh, yeah. 3D printed the the rocket. I mean the the aerospike nozzle. So um yeah, it just it just looks very cool. Um like so when I searched when I searched it up, the it looked the nozzle looks a bit different to what I expected. Yeah. Well, do you know why that uh, that has, has a shape like that? Is that for the compression? That's that's so. the spike. Yeah. So, um, what's what you're showing there is um, essentially the inverse of the curve that's inside a bell nozzle. If that makes sense. Yes. So it's exactly the same mathematics that produces that curve, um, but. Instead of you having a, a centralized point from the throat, which is at the center, you have your annular throat. So you start from the outside, um, and so the 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 reflection, uh, sorry, the the shock waves travel down towards the center of the nozzle, um, and that's how you get that slope, which is um, then forms a spike. So why haven't people been using aerospikes already? Right. So I know I asked a, you this in, <laughs> before, but uh, I think yeah. Um, I th I, th I think you could you could you could go on and on about this. So I'd, I'd like to hear you um more. No, absolutely. Yeah. So so this is a um, this is a question I ask myself a lot. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you it's know, like, if because like a prayer every day. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, you 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 think about it, and a an aerospike nozzle. Uh, typically will have between 95 and 97% efficiency of expansion throughout its entire flight regime. Which, you know, you compare that to a bell nozzle, which will have 95 to 97% efficiency at one point in its flight, and then it degrades after that. So it, overall, it has about a, a 60 to 70% efficiency um, over the, the flight. So you think, okay, well, why is that? And the the only explanation I found so far was given in a uh, Elon Musk and Tim Dodd interview, um, where Elon um, Musk was asked this exact question: "Like aerospikes are so much more efficient, why aren't you using them on the Falcon 9?" And what he said was that it messes up the characteristic length, which is basically when you're doing your combustion. Um, you have a certain geometrical constraint on the combustion chamber, which means that you um, get your maximal efficiency out when, when you follow that. And he basically said that the aerospike changes that to the extent where you lose more efficiency in your actual combustion process than you would gain from the expansion efficiency of the nozzle itself. The other problem is that aerospikes tend to be heavier, unless very, very carefully engineered. Um, they tend to be heavier than um, bell nozzles, which means that usually you would overcome that with the increased efficiency. But if you're already dealing with a, a handicap from uh, your combustion, uh, then that makes a lot more sense as to why people aren't, aren't using them. And then, of course, you've got the thermal problem as well, which, you know, adds complexity. Yeah, that's a, that's a good answer. Um... Do you know any further why others haven't used it? Um, so 
I, I think it mainly boils down to that. Um, and of course, I mean, this, this brings us back to why, why we want to use a, an aerospike on our rocket, which is a hybrid motor, is because the same considerations don't need to be taken into account. I mean, the, the, the combustion considerations. The other things we still need to take into account. <laughs> um, but the, the combustion is not um, that much of a, of, a, of a factor because you've already got this long tube up uh, which the, the combustion is uh, occurring over. Um, and by the time the the gas reaches the, the nozzle, it's already um, fully fully transformed. So basically what you need uh, in terms of a hybrid motor uh, is a huge amount of efficiency and then your cooling. Um, and I think that's... That's the challenge for us is to focus on that cooling problem um, because of course we don't we don't really carry coolants on board. Um, so the rockets are in a theoretical design stage at the moment, um, and we'll need to we'll need to look into that uh, that process um, more more fully. Cool. cool. So, uh, are there any other uh, types of rocket engines? that um, have caught your eye recently, besides aerospikes? There's the rotation uh, detonation hmm. engine, this. which is really, really cool. Um, and basically how that works, uh, well, firstly, I should say most rockets work on a, a process known as deflagration, which means that you inject um, particles of fuel and particles of oxidizer, they mix, and then they have a flame front that travels through them. Don't get me wrong, that flame front travels quite fast, but it's a subsonic flame front is the, the main key. And what you have with um, a rotation detonation engine is you basically inject the fuel, and then you have a shockwave that's traveling around the uh, around the outside of the, the engine. And that shockwave, as we've said, causes a, a high compression area, but a lot of temperature. So it causes essentially instant uh, burning of that, of that mixture, um, of course, detonation. And those promise huge efficiencies over uh, deflagration combustion. The main problem is maintaining that stability of the shockwave, um, which is sort of inherently unstable. Uh, and if you uh, if you can't uh, if you can't get it the injections of the fuel and the oxidizer at exactly the right moments, um, you cause instability, and then it sort of um, yeah you lose control of that process. See, it, it, it sounds like it's a bit like the the Wankel engine. In in cost, <laughs> um, it, I mean, it's just a rotation, possibly. Yeah. Does that have any similarities to that? I mean, I'm not gonna lie. It's sort of like yes, but the similarity is like, you know, it's it's a bit of a far-reaching similarity. So yes, in the sense that with the Wankel engine, you create uh, a pocket of very high pressure um, oh. on the outside of the motor. Uh, and 
that then combusts and creates pressure, which turns the um, turns the the, the rotating uh, element of that engine around. Um, but in pretty much all other um, elements, they're, they're dissimilar. Um, with the ro uh, rotational um, or rotating detonation engine, what you what you're essentially doing is um, you're instead of having any moving parts in the engine, you've got a moving shockwave. Yeah. Um, so it, it, in theory, makes it simpler. It's just more complex to control. Oh, I see. Uh, yeah, it seems like quite a cool uh, little um, little engine. Um, would that have any problems with like angular momentum in space with the air going? That's a very, very good question. That is a brilliant question. So this is this is certainly something that um, I think they're they're looking at. So I know that current uh, rotational detonation engines um, have the actual um, fluid that you're you're trying to combust between an outer surface and an inner surface. So they keep that moving mass quite low. Um, but yeah, no, in, in sort of, um, if you do have a, a rotating mass and you would expect an eccentric load on the, yeah. on the engine and at quite a high frequency. So, so that's actually a brilliant question. Yeah. It's, it wouldn't, it wouldn't be good in space. <laughs> no. hmm. It wouldn't be good on the launch pad either. <laughs> <laughs> oh God. Yeah. I mean, that would just basically cause a lot of roll, right? <laughs> when, you're, when you're going up. So, well, do you know, this, this is one of the things, right? So that's the, um, a sort of similar effect happened in the, uh, the Saturn V when they, they launched it. They had um, combustion stability that caused uh, the, the flow to rotate around the inside of the, of the engine. And then you got the, the majority of the, the mass thrown to one side, which then caused a thrust instability. And um, basically that, that lined up with the frequency um, or the structural frequency of the rocket. So that nearly caused the failure of the uh, the first Saturn V that was launched. Um, so, so they, they do, can be catastrophic. Yeah. Do, do you know if they fixed it after, or they just added oh, yeah. a few things to reduce the effect? Okay. So yeah, you're that's a that's a very good distinction. Um, did they actually fix the problem, or did they yeah. just mitigate it? And uh, they just mitigated it. Um, at mm. that time, they they didn't understand combustion stability. Um, do we even today is <laughs> a very good question. But what they basically did was they added baffles um, after the injectors and those baffles straightened out the flow and stopped the instabilities from forming, which made the rocket uh, a lot more stable and obviously led to the success of the Saturn V. You said, you said, um, I mean, you, you kind of jokingly asked um, if, we, if we understand combustion dynamics today, Right, and I guess because it's all it's a I mean it's to do with fluid dynamics and such a complicated, um, what's it called complex, uh, well complex in that it's a complexity science field. Um, do do you think? I mean, what what do you think will help us understand combustion dynamics more? 
Well, um, I mean, the the reason I joked about it is uh, we we certainly we have made progress, um, and it is still a very complex area, um, and it's also an area of active research. Um, basically, the problem at the moment is modeling what's happening in the engine. Um, so what you have in combustion is hugely different length scales of effect. Um, so you've got, you know, micro, uh, uh, sort of micro vortices um, of the order of, you know, less than a millimeter, um, and then macro fluid movements, uh, you know, potentially on the order of a meter or, or, or about that. So you've got this huge disparity in length scale, uh, which means that your mesh that you have to use has to be incredibly fine. And essentially what that means is that you need a lot of computational power um, in order to run those simulations. Uh, and that's, that's really the, the limit at the moment is, is based on computational power. Um, and a lot of work's going into um, making those models more computationally efficient yeah. Um, which is, yeah, is absolutely fantastic work. Um, but yeah, it, it, in short, uh, if we could have infinitely power, powerful computers, uh, we could solve everything. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so. um, I'm, I'm, th I'm thinking, because we've, we've also talked about machine learning before. Uh, if we, I mean, I guess it, it could be possible to, to try to train um, our models on... Um, like Shrillin imaging, possibly, but it have to be really, it have to be at the at a really small scale with like really high resolution cameras, right? Like incredibly high resolution cameras, and then again, it's it's still be difficult to uh, to extract the science out of these, um, well, close to black box models. So yeah, um, absolutely, and I mean. So this is this is another area of active research. I've actually got a got a colleague working at um, Oxford Brookes University uh, who's who's looking at this sort of stuff. And um, I mean, you're absolutely right. the The ideal way that this could work out is that because um, obviously uh, neural networks are very uh, computationally intense to train, but to run, they're actually quite computationally efficient. Yeah. Um, so the ideal way that this could work out is that you do a bunch of simulations um, and you train the, the network on those simulations. And then you can alter parameters and get a rapid calculation of a adjusted output. Actually doing that is very difficult. Yeah, because uh, CFD data itself would be it would would be a very large file sizes, right? Yeah. Um, like, and even like with with the with imaging and um, you know, videos, it'd be um, it would have a lot of it have a lot of features because it's it's just computer vision, right? So. Um, yeah actually yeah so so some of some of this stuff is um is covered in a, a book um called data driven um driven science and engineering 
yes, data driven yes, science and yeah. engineering. I bought, um, I bought that book after you you, you recommended fantastic. it to me. <laughs> fantastic, yeah. yeah. So so they actually they actually look at some of the ways that they've tried to model um, uh, turbulence and uh, dynamic effects and fluids uh, using neural networks uh, and other statistical models. Um, and honestly, I mean, like on the cutting edge, it it looks very very promising. Um, mm. The main problem is accuracy, is maintaining accuracy. I see. Because um, you know the there was also on on YouTube there was an interview of um, Bjorn uh, Sostrup, um, who invented C and he was asked about uh, neural networks, and he he basically gave the answer that. Um, Neural networks are great for doing things where you can't have a, a definite programmable outcome. But where you can, then you, you should always program that because you've got a, a, a much higher accuracy of output than you would with a neural network, which is more of a heuristic of the, the effects in the, the system. Mm. Yeah. Um, so is, is there a way we can almost, almost merge it, do you think? I'm leaving it yeah, so, I'm wondering what you think. So this, this is actually a, a really, really good question. Um, and I believe, again, watching some of the, the, the stuff that Tesla is putting out, um, that's what they're trying to do is they, they've got sort of a hybrid um, a hybrid code base where part of it is uh, what they call um, uh, Gen 2, I believe, um, coding, which is using networks. Um, and part of it is Gen 1, which is hard programmed. And um, that really allows you to, uh, to have incredible flexibility um, because, of course, the reason we use networks is where we can't say, um, I know why this does this. So please, can you can you do exactly that? Um, but also to have the accuracy of uh, where we, we can actually create a deterministic outcome um, and then put that into the um, into the code base directly. Could you repeat that last bit? What, what do you mean by that? So, so a really good example would be um, if I wanted to design a drone, right? Yeah. I can work out uh, mathematically uh, the dynamics of how it should fly and where I want it to go and all that sort of stuff. So I can put that in um, manually and, and actually just program that um, into the, 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 the software. Um, what I can't do is then say, while you're flying along, um, I would like you to, let's say, find a lost rocket that uh, I launched and it's crashed into the ground and I don't know where it is. So I can't deterministically look into the computer's video feed and say, I, I need a rocket there. So I can create a, a vision network, um, convolutional uh, neural network, which is trained on rockets and would, as it's flying, be able to pick that out. So that's that's a, a really good example of blending those two approaches. I see. 
Um, that's because because I was I was thinking um, of some sort of uh, some sort of program that would switch between um, CFD computational fluid dynamics and um, machine learning methods depending on the regions that have uh, have previously been tested to be accurate or not. Right. For example, uh, the leading edge of the of the of a of a commercial airline would probably have a lot of CFD data on it already, so would be pretty easy to train. But then the uh, towards the, the the very end of the of the wing, because of the turbulence there, that would probably work better on CFD, right? Mm -hmm. um, so that, that was what I was thinking. Um, do you think? Do you think that's just making it unnecessarily complicated? Or? Do you know what? So, I mean, in theory, that's that's a really really good way of approaching it. Uh, you would, you would exactly you'd be able to harness the efficiency of the the network in order to produce the boundary conditions for the the CFD. The the problem is the accuracy, as, as we mentioned yeah. beforehand. So um, small changes in conditions, especially in turbulent flows, small changes in your boundary conditions mm -hmm. can have quite large changes in the outcome. Yeah. Uh, and that's really the challenge is to, mm -hmm. to make sure that you, um, you're accurately representing the uh, physical flow field. Um, so I meant, does it make sense to, um, to like switch between the two? Um, have CFD in the turbulent parts, like to the tip of the, uh, I mean, to the end of the wing and then have machine learning on the laminar flow parts? Um, I, I think that could work. Again, I'm, I'm not an expert in CFD, mm. um, but to me, that sounds plausible uh you can you can model um equations with with neural networks quite effectively uh so bearing in mind that we we can theoretically calculate the flow around a wing um i think that that should be possible i see hmm. um yeah. the actual the vortices and uh flow separation and all that becomes very tricky mm -hmm. i got yeah because I'm, I'm just i'm thinking um due to the statistical and probabilistic nature of neural networks um feeding in data from machine learning models from the laminar parts into the turbulent parts would could completely mess up this whole cfd um, calculations. So, I guess more. I mean, yeah. Well, we should check. We should check out on what what there exists out there at the moment. Uh, yeah, sounds pretty cool. Um, do you have any uh, other ideas on that? On on the CFD or yes, like merging CFD and ML.
No, I mean, I think uh, I know that they're they're doing a similar thing in structural mechanics, and um, sometimes um, neural networks can be used in in simulations of all different uh, different kinds. Um, I mean, I I tend to 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 agree with the view that. Uh, as we go on, neural networks will become more and more prevalent um, because of their flexibility um, and the the way that we approach the mathematics of them um, will certainly improve, meaning that the, the accuracy of the models should also improve. Um, and I think that as we as we progress, um, we'll be able to um, model more and more complex effects. Um, using these these systems um but yeah i mean like i said these are very very complex uh interactions that i can't immediately predict um so when you're talking about the um using machine learning and structural mechanics is that from like your research now or just in general um, so that's that's something that's in general. Um, yeah, I mean, so this, it's also something I've I've done in the past, where um, during my masters I used a a neural network to model the um, uh, the input of a load cell um, from the strain output. Um, so you have a, a nonlinear response there, and um, you can use uh, a neural network to quite effectively do that. Um, whether that's better than calculating it manually, that's uh, another thing. I mean, neural networks are basically, they're really, really good where you don't necessarily know exactly how to get from the input to the output. Um, and they will uh, essentially produce uh, a heuristic law of input to output and allow you to um, to to make predictions on a new input. Uh, yeah. So that yeah, that's basically why they're they're such useful things. Um, in structural mechanics, you can have things where um, you've got, say, for example, um, a bridge. Um, I've seen it applied to. And you basically want to create a, a network that will allow you to um, gauge the strength of the bridge and you can redesign, put it into the network without having to simulate the whole bridge again. Um, so that's, that's one approach. Um, and like I say, they, they can be very, very useful for this. Um, but usually what happens is that you'll, uh, you'll do that and then you'll go back and look at the the recommended up, um, output and do more rigorous um, engineering around that solution, uh, just to verify. Yeah. yeah. Um, as I've been doing an internship in machine learning for battery manufacturing, um, you can see how uh, uh, getting getting more data. Um, uh, 
uh, allows you to look for the, the, the points at which something needs to be improved, right? And that's, I guess, where it comes into doing more engineering um, based on what you had mentioned, right? Uh, where, where, the, where the load is likely to fail and then um, just to confirm it as well that the model is, uh, is working as, as intended, I suppose. Uh, how, would you, how would you phrase that? No, that's exactly it. Yeah. It's it's a validation, um, and that's that's exactly what we do in all in all sciences. I mean, uh, you know, we shouldn't. Um, I think we've probably given the impression that that's that's something that we just do with neural networks. Um, but the the reality is that uh, if I um, use uh, structural mechanics in in my research to calculate how foam fails or, or bone fails, something like that, um, the first thing I've I do after I've made that prediction is stick it in a in a test jig and run the experiment. Um, so it's it's always validation based on the experimental baseline. Yeah. And especially if you're gonna if you're gonna start using it in rocketry, you really need yeah. to validate it very carefully. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, do you think? Uh, do Do you have any other? Uh, visions maybe about uh, what other technologies from computer science or uh, chemistry anything else that will come into rocketry that's a that's a very interesting question um i think that um additive manufacturing it's it's put its toe in um, but I mean, as, as you'll often hear me say, you know, there's a limit of where you, you do something with additive manufacturing because it's a really good solution, right? And then there, there's sort of a limit where the bigger the rocket, you can't print it anymore because the, the, the material properties just aren't there. Mm -hmm. um, so in essence, this, um, this 3D printed rocket, which that university created was... Uh, one of those things where it's like at that scale, really good solution on a larger scale. It's like, yes, you can do it, but you're basically doing it to say you did it. Um, but I certainly think that as we progress and we understand the material science of 3D printing much more and we start to increase additives, um, so we, we increase use of additives in um, plastics like short fiber, uh, reinforced plastic, um, that sort of thing, you'll get better properties out, which means that you can use the inherent benefits of additive manufacturing and you can create very complex um, geometry. Um, you'd be able to leverage that more um, for, for greater effect. Again, there are limitations. Fatigue is a massive limitation of additive manufacturing. Um, but like I say, as we start to, as we increase our knowledge in the material science of, uh, of additive manufacturing, I think that we'll, um, we'll definitely start to see it widely or more widely used. Um, other computational tools? Um, I don't know. I mean, computing is such a, such a wide subject. Um, 
it's just crazy. I, I've got um, I've got a colleague uh, who the other day was telling me about some research he's doing on um, neural networks with sort of discontinuous uh, activation functions. And, you know, it's, it's stuff like that, which is just absolutely fascinating. Um, and I think the, the reality is that um, computer science is moving ahead so fast, of course, on, on the horizon. We've got quantum computers and all that sort of stuff coming through. Um, it's moving so fast that I don't think that I could make a prediction that would be, that would even hold water in five years time. Um, but certainly it will be very interesting. And um, I think the, the goal will always be to increase the accuracy of our models and, um, you know, in rocketry, it'll be make the rocket more efficient and, you know, all, all that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you raised some uh, pretty cool stuff, like especially with add additive manufacturing, right? Um, I mean, we, we had talked to Andrew Shapiro a couple of months ago um, who had been working at NASA at JPL then uh, Proteus and uh, he was he was working on um, additive manufacture, manufacturing in space as well right and um, yeah like we've been I mean we've, we've talked about like uh, other ways additive manufacturing is used like I think SpaceX is intending to end up just 3d printing their whole all, all their engines at some point um, right yeah and uh, have you heard of relativity space the i haven't so they uh they're, they're a company that are trying to 3d print 3d print the whole rocket um and uh, essentially because with additive manufacturing everything is one piece right you can reduce the number of nuts and bolts and points of failure right yeah. and yeah. design the structure in a way that um, best combats the the structure. I mean, well, it best best protects structural integrity of the of the rocket, and it's it's almost like a it's almost like taking the Silicon Valley hacker mindset to rocketry, right? Innovating quickly, um, with pro like making quick prototypes, testing. And then um, just repeating the whole cycle, right? Yeah, that's it's a it's a big it's a big um, point of potential, I think, for the aerospace industry, and yeah. it, I find it quite exciting. Yeah, and as you said, with uh, the whole computer science field and theoretical computer science, all of it is just so quick, and um, the people are coming up with all sorts of new models and. Uh, new um, new frameworks and even different types of calculus right for yeah. uh, for for simulations and rendering um, I mean I could I could see I could see um, like machine learning being applied to additive manufacturing right um, creating even more complex structures that are best designed for a certain mission or yeah. a certain um, altitude even uh, altitude um, like uh, even like point at which like the sea level um, oh, like number of meters above sea level at which it's launched right 
and different materials as well for us, but like double for the double effects on like specific area, right? Maybe the maybe the nose cone would have uh, like a um, like some sort of matrix, right? That can be three D printed, uh, some sort of composite. Um, there's, so, there's so much that could be done in rocketry, and I'm glad that people uh, people are now increasingly becoming um, more uh, more confident that they can tackle it and uh, not need to be within a governmental organization. You know? Yeah. 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 No, I think that's, that's, um, that's definitely something that, uh, that is a huge benefit to the industry um, is that we've moved away from uh, just a couple of government organizations working on it. Um, it's very expensive and it's very risky, but you know, yeah. the companies that have pulled through um, yeah. SpaceX and uh, Blue Origin and Virgin Galactic um, to name a few are, uh, and of course, um, there's that New Zealand one, which is yeah. Uh, what's that one called? Um, uh, let me just search out quickly. Yeah. Was oh, it called I mean, Rocket they're... Company or something? Uh, Rocket Lab. It's called Rocket Lab. Rocket Lab. Yeah. 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 So I mean, yeah. they're 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 actually doing some really really interesting stuff with um, sort of electric uh, rockets quote unquote, in that they're using an electric pump to to force a fuel uh, and oxidizer into the, the motor. So there's a whole load of in, innovation that's happening across the industry um, because we've uh, moved into a, a private era at the moment. Um, the future is very, very exciting. Yeah, I 100% agree. And the best part is that um, even, even if like, you're not interested in rocketry or you um, yeah even if you're not interested in rocketry all these all these innovations and technology still trickle down right have you have you have i told you about the whole uh nasa spin out there's like there's a whole there's a whole document detailing all the spin outs from nasa and how they've just they're just integrated into society now <laughs> Jeez. yeah um do, yeah, do, do check it out it's, it is yeah. it is quite interesting yeah, I know. Do you have, do you have any, uh, uh, just one last question, do you have any last um, things or um, ideas, things that you've seen in the current news about rocketry? I'm pretty cool. Um, I mean, there's there's a lot that's that's very, very cool in the last, uh, last little while. Um, one of the things, of course, is that uh, we've had that commercial launch with SpaceX. Mm -hmm. uh, Inspiration Four, right? Yeah, it might be called that. I, I'll be honest; I haven't been following it too closely. But um, yeah. you know, the the idea that uh, we've got space tourists um, hiring a uh, a launch um, to to go on a ride is you know, immensely exciting. Um, and then of course, we've seen the integration of uh, Spaceship onto the um, the, the booster um, so that they're uh, in SpaceX and in uh, Boca Chica. Um, it is Boca Chica. Yeah. yeah, I think it's Boca Chica. They yeah. bought out a whole, uh, like all the, all the houses there. And, yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> and I think Elon Musk moved into 
like this little uh box house. <laughs> he sold he sold quite a lot of mansions and moved into this little box house, so he could yeah. continue working on it more. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that that man doesn't sleep. Um, but uh, yeah, so I mean, but this this is really really exciting, and I think we're going to see a, a launch of that. Well, hopefully soon. Um, yeah. And I, I I really think that you know out of all of the all of the companies, um, SpaceX really has to be applauded for pushing the boundaries um, as they have. Um, they've basically uh, taken technology, um, the nozzles, all of this sort of stuff was, uh, as, as we were talking about earlier, well-established in you know the 50s and 60s. Um, and the theory hasn't changed. Um, so they've taken that, that technology that was well-established and they've just pushed it out beyond where anyone could imagine, um, you know, landing rockets, uh, was was it wasn't thought to be impossible it was just you know you're you're silly if you do yeah. it because it's ridiculously inefficient because you've got yeah. to carry all the mass backwards and forwards um but they've done it they've shown it works and you know yeah, full kudos to them yeah. i think they're really pushing the boundaries it's the whole first principles thinking that i think yeah. they've really adopted well um i remember reading the Ashley Vance book about Elon Musk and how they how they, they were using a garage door or um, the, the, the mechanism for a garage door for uh, one of the for, for like a fin or something like that. And how how they how they're really being quite creative uh, with with their constraints and yeah. resources to to innovate essentially. Right. Um, yeah yeah anyway thank you thank you so much david i think um this has been a very successful first podcast session um i, I hope to have you on in the future for to just continue talking about the new advances in rocketry and anything basically like we, ha- we haven't even touched on you know mountain biking or your, your research that you're currently on yeah yeah no but that's that's brilliant thank you very much for for inviting me it's been great to talk very much um is there a place that we can find find your work online um or reach out to you uh researchgate um all of my theses so far are published on researchgate um reach out to me uh i've got linkedin or um uh the the nuffield orthopedic uh Endorms. Uh, it's it's a long acronym. I can't remember exactly now what yeah. it is, but uh, it's the Nuffield Orthopedic um, Center for Rheumatology and Musculoskeletal Sciences. There we go. Um, <laughs> so they they have a, a website, um, and uh, I'm on there as well. So, okay. Well, I should, I just wanted to mention one more thing. I just realized. Um, you know how you're talking about how SpaceX have had been so far-reaching, um, like. They like the, the the work that they have done can be seen from anywhere in the world as long as you are at the right time. Like yeah. uh, I think I may have mentioned to you before. Uh, I was standing in the quad of uh of Trinity College Oxford, a five hundred year old institution, right? And I was just seeing Starlink go go 
uh, above me for like a couple minutes, just a bunch of satellites, uh, just at 12 a.m. at night. And it was, it was quite, it was quite a sight. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, Absolutely, um, the future of aerospace, um, and just for exploration and for the bettering and benefit of humanity is quite bright. I think. But, I think so as well. Yeah. Thank you so much, David. Uh, have a good day. Thank you. Okay. You too.